Do it. As business owners, entrepreneurs, family men, it's difficult for us to find the time to put together projects like these. Even though it's something we really want to do, unfortunately, taking care of the things we have to take care of comes first. However, because of viewer support for people like you, we're able to continue doing this. Please consider joining our Patreon and supporting the Burn and Return podcast. Listening to Burn and Return, a weekly one hour podcast covering news from the agricultural and turf grass industries. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Burn and Return. You have entered the world of hurt. Just kidding. There's not going to be any hurt today, but we do have an action-packed show of several topics that um, are definitely pertinent to everything that's going on in the world right now. I, you know, again, just to kind of harp on some of the things we've been hearing is, uh, you know, how oh, we're definitely running out of content, aren't we? Because it's the end of the year. Nope, no, we are not. Uh, there is no shortage of content. In fact, there were so many articles in the queue today um, that uh, we had to we had to scale it down because it was so intense. I hope everybody had a very, very Merry Christmas, and uh, and I hope everyone has an exceptional New Year. With that being said, let me introduce the stars of the show, Mr. Ryan DeMay and Mr. Ray Ito. Gentlemen, how are y'all doing? Fantastic, Matt. And, uh, you know, it was a, a rollicking pre-show. I've composed myself now, and I think I'm ready to talk about, you know, a little bit of grass. What do you think, Ray? Yeah, I, I think I'm ready to uh, get serious too. <laughs> I and for those of y'all that are wondering what we're talking about, I will just warn you that there was nothing serious that was discussed in the pre-show. Um, it was it was great and it was a lot of fun. We had I don't know how to describe what went on in the pre-show today, but it was uh, it was a lot of fun. If you're interested in learning more about that kind of thing, it's the start of the show when we talk about the Patreon. Um, our patrons know what we're talking about because it's a little bit of content before the actual content of the show. That being said, let's move into this week's headlines. We did it again. Just roll with it. Nothing to fear here. This is just the news. (laughs) All right. This first headline here is one of the most classic. All right. let Let me put it this way. I get asked on a daily basis about a lot of the things that are mentioned in this article, right? Like, hey, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but if you were me in this scenario, would you do this kind of thing? And you, trust me, as much as I would love to tell people, uh, I know, man, and, you know, you, hey, nothing to worry about. Everything's going to be okay. Well, guess what? The North Carolina Pesticide Board announces settlement in Burke case. Oh, did we say a Burke case? How about a metric shitload of cases? A Burke County case was one of the 35 North Carolina Pesticide Board announced settlements for Monday. 
James Cockrell, a licensed aerial applicator who owns Air Assault Agricultural Aviation in Jonesville, agreed to pay $1,400 for depositing a pesticide within 100 feet of a residence in Conley Springs, according to a release from the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. This settlement was one of 35 the board announced this week. Some others that were announced here. A licensed applicator agreed to pay $600 for use of a pesticide in a manner inconsistent with labeling. The pesticide was applied to an off-label nursery site uh, north of Lenore. Or in this one here, a, a, on a golf course, a commercial applicator for a golf course used an improper pesticide or improper use of a pesticide on baseball fields near uh, Vanceboro. The pesticide was agricultural use only. I want everybody to let that stick out in your mind. So for one of the DMs I got the other day, and I'm not going to talk about who the person is because it's a, I feel like it's a valid question that people don't oftentimes understand, is they see sticker shock when it comes to a home. <laughs> I'm choking to death over here. They get sticker, sticker shock for a product that is labeled for use in residential lawn care. And in this particular instance, I'll mention, uh, 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 what is it? Um, oh, my goodness. Demay, what is the new grub, con- not the newest grub control, but the second newest grub control that's taking over? A celebrant. He was asking mm-hmm. about the difference between the Acelepran and Ultraset labels, and he wanted to spray Ultraset because it was significantly cheaper than, um, than Acelepran was. And here, in this particular instance right here, we see one gentleman was fined. As you read through this list, you'll see multiple people were fined for doing the exact same thing. I'm not going to go through this, but I would like to turn this over to uh, Demay here. And Demay, were there any particular... Uh, comments in in these in these uh, in these fines here that stuck out to you. Were there some good ones? Oh boy, this was a total uh, just a nice summary of everything that you should not do if you are a licensed pesticide applicator. Uh, let's go through some of my highlights here. Uh, let's see here in Pitt County, a gentleman. Uh, it was a commercial pesticide applicator for. I'm not going to say their name, but they're the largest commercial application company in America. And Greenville agreed to pay $800 because he failed to renew his pesticide applicator license and continued to apply pesticides. At the time of the investigation, no other employees of the largest uh, lawn care company in America held a valid commercial pesticide or applicator license at that location. This gentleman has since renewed his license. So... $800 $800 later, but you had a whole location, a whole branch of this one outfit, right? Again, the largest lawn care provider in the country, right? Uh, that did not have a license. So that's scary. Uh, There's another one here on a golf course uh, where the guy did not allow proper time for, oh, let's see here, $800 for applying a pesticide in a manner consistent with the label by allowing golfers to enter the greens at Wilmington Municipal Golf Course before there was enough time for the products to dry. So, you know, first group out, he's trying to get sprayed and everything, and then doesn't hold him back, and now they're out there playing on those greens. I'm sure somebody either called and complained or there was just an inspector out there that day that he got unlucky and got himself in some deep, deep doo-doo. Uh, let's see here. Oh, here's another one from the largest lawn care provider in America. 
uh, in Morrisville agreed to pay $600 because an employee under the supervision of his license operated in a faulty, careless, or negligent manager or manner, excuse me, by making a pesticide application to the wrong residential address in Raleigh. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Think that's going to be a callback, Matt? Yeah. Uh, real, real quick, can I can I do this Ooh. one here from Wake County because it is so. Oh yeah, that's a good. No, no, that's this is a good one. This is the this is the highest dollar figure right here. This is it this is. is your true daily truly daily devil. It, and we saw instructions on actually how to achieve this. Yeah. On YouTube. So wait for I this one, right? On YouTube, wow. and that was actually my defense when I was in court. Said Richard Cohen, a licensed applicator and owner of Mosquito Joe in Raleigh. He agreed to pay $3,200 for improper disposal of rinseate into a storm drain. Cohen told the inspector that at his instruction, an employee dumped contents of a 100-gallon water container in a storm drain near the business. Sample taken from the drain showed evidence of pesticides, which indicated improper disposal of pesticides. Yikes. Yikes. Wow. wow. This, no, nobody's perfect, right, Ray? Nobody is perfect. Mm-hmm. We're not perfect. We've made mistakes, whether it be out of, you know, negligence, ignorance, trying to get, you know, trying to be in a rush, whatever the case might be. But, you know, some of these things are not that. They are pure malice. People that are thumbing their nose at what they know is right and doing wrong uh, as, as a result. So, I don't know. I mean, what would you, if you were, uh, if you were... You know what they should do, Ray? I think we should get rid of all fines. I think we should get you to North Carolina for about a week, (laughs) maybe two. And I think we do like those one of those boot camp things, you know, those scared straight type of things. And we lock these people up with you for a week at pesticide boot camp. And you can yell and scream and PT these people until they puke. What do you think? Man, that would be... Just, uh, I don't know, that, that would be better than me meeting the fried green tomato lady. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> that would be, all, that would, I don't know which would be worse. I don't know, I don't know which, which one my heart could, uh, would go, give out on first. But seriously, Matt, Ryan, I'm mm-hmm. seeing some of the things that were mentioned in this article. And my only thought is, if the willful violations of the label happened in my state, uh, these people would not be paying a little fine to the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. Instead, what these people would be doing is they'd be in federal court with the EPA pesticides division because the Hawaii Department of Agriculture will just turn their entire case over to the feds. And that is where things get real scary when the feds get involved. Uh, and yeah. here's the thing, and you know, I will be honest, I have made significant mistakes over the course mm-hmm. of my career. Um, you know, there was one in here where a, a, a licensed applicator made the application to a wrong property. I've done that before. Um, and, oh. and you know, that that's a terrible thing. I've had the plant board called on me for uh, being accused of spraying an incorrect herbicide. I was found innocent in that uh, after they mm-hmm. performed soil testing. 
Um, I've had issues with drift before where temperature inversion absolutely roasted things. And that was, you know, one of the things in here too. The, the point being is that we should, if, if there has never been an opportunity to take these things serious, this should be a stark reminder that what we do is incredibly serious. And we talk about our mistakes and we talk about articles like this to remind you of the seriousness and the responsibility that goes along with being a licensed applicator. It is not as cut and dried, as easy, easy as, you know, well, I go in in the afternoon, I fill up the tank with whatever's in the bulk tank, and I get out there and I go have at it, and I got to get my (laughs) my 25 yards done on the day, and then I go home, and, and that's the end of it. It's not. It's a bit more complex than that. And then this, and I'll tell you right now, that North Carolina fines are not very high. Um, typically, we no, see fines a lot higher than this. And what would be interesting to see, though, is how many of these people lost either their certification or license in uh, being able to continue to make applications. Was it denied for six months, a year, six years? We're only talking about monetary uh, uh, issues here, but what we don't see is how long these people are inhibited from being able to make money the way they know how to make money. And that is equally as damaging as being stuck with a $3,200 fine for dumping rinse-eight into a storm drain, right? Right. Well, Matt, I I told you about my one conversation with the Hawaii Department of Agriculture agent regarding something like that. And what he told me was just frightening. Because what he told me is, nah, we usually don't go after somebody's certification. We don't. You know, it'll take a lot for us to do that. What he did say, though, is you're probably not going to be in business anyway because, uh, the EPA fine and settlement is probably going to put you out of business. <laughs> so in, I can tell you in Georgia, mm-hmm. that was exactly what was hung over my head was uh, my certification and license in the state. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, a lot of this comes down to to the state level, even down to the county level, because you're in a different county than we saw earlier where someone was applying a a pesticide only labeled for agricultural use. Um, this is a spring green lawn care, very large franchise, multi hundred hundred million dollar company with branches mm-hmm. all over the United States. You know, the other one was a eight hundred dollar fine. Now we've got a twelve hundred dollar fine. Right, the only difference is same state, but different county, different inspector. And um, and you know now, it, so it, who knows how it's going to happen? Who knows when you're going to get caught? And the the point is, is that when you do get caught. How are you going to handle the consequences of it? Or is it just simpler to model your business around not worrying about these things? When you go to sleep at night, it's one less thing you have to panic about because you've got a whole bunch of ultra set on your truck and you feel like invincible with it, right? So anyway, mm-hmm. I think this should be a, uh, a, a, a something that, 
brings everyone to their senses and is a stark reminder of the reality of what we do and the responsibility that we carry within this industry. Well said, Matthew. Sure. Yes. Thank you. All right. These next two headlines here, I'm going to move through a little quick because we've got a lot of deep dives to move into when we get to the burns. And so this first one, I wanted to bring up because these are the break-even prices for corn and soybeans. And gentlemen, we are seeing cost to plant at prices we have never, never seen before. Break-even prices to cover total cost for 2022 are projected at 473 a bushel for corn and $11.06 per bushel for soybeans. Compared to historical levels, these break-even prices are very high. While current fall bids are above break-even levels, the high break-even levels present risks in 2022. And so while right now the price of corn exceeds uh, the, the cost per bushel right now, and the same thing with uh, 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 soybean, what's most frightening about this whole thing is uh, we do not know what the continued pressure on the fertilizer scene is going to be. Um, and this is projected at high productivity farmland. So they're talking about an average bushel per acre of corn here at 225 bushel. If anybody's been around the corn scene knows 225 bushel an acre ain't too bad at all. Uh, I've seen lots of it over huge, huge hundreds of mile stretches where your high end is going to be 200 bushel an acre and your average is going to be closer to about 175. Again, on the soybeans over here, we're looking at roughly 50 bushels an acre. For anybody that's grown soybean knows that that is right down the middle of the road average, and you've got just as much under that as you've got over that. I thought the uh, uh, the one of the closing comments here was uh, was was pretty. Mm, I don't know, made me a little nervous. High break-even price levels highlight the risk associated with crop production in twenty two twenty twenty two current fall bids of five dollar per bushel of corn and twelve dollar soybeans or above break-even levels. However, commodity prices will need to remain at historically high levels for profitable crop production to occur. Pricing some grain at current levels would be prudent. And then there is oh, one more here. Um, that was not what I was looking for. <sighs> ah, having prices at break-even levels will not result in financial stability. Net income will equal zero. Positive incomes are needed to cover necessary family living expenses and provide funds for debt repayment and capital replacement. So if we lose this current bid of $5 per bushel uh, um, on corn and $12 per bushel of soybean, it tanks for whatever reason. And your cost to plant is at four seventy three dollars per bushel and $11.50 per bushel on soybean and, and corn. And you're operating at a, at a major loss there. Uh, you know, we're talking the economic impact that extends from that is going to be massive, right? Because we think about farm equipment that's already in short supply, and now all of a sudden uh, it's screwing with banks, local economies. The ripple effect from this could be pretty significant. And uh, it's, again, one more piece of the puzzle that we've been talking about for many months now to keep an eye on and and pray uh, for, for economic stability uh, that we continue to see these high commodity prices, because if things were to correct and while everybody's all 
jazz hands over high commodity prices. Remember, high commodity prices mean high food prices. Everybody wants food prices returned to normal, right? Well, guess what? All of a sudden, again, uh, the farmers of America are going to take massive, massive losses. So really what it comes down to is who's going to be caught holding the bag because someone will. It's either going to be us, the consumer, or it's going to be the farmer. And, uh, and, and that will be interesting to see the fallout of that because eventually it will correct. And that is where the chaos could potentially happen. There there anything to that you gentlemen want to add? The only other chaos I could see would be, you know, we had a historic drought in parts of the Corn Belt this past summer, right? Now, what if these commodity prices stay that high? What if we have flood, a drought? You know, there's there's crop insurance there to protect a farmer to an extent, right? It's not going to make them whole. But, you know, again, it gets back into this whole supply and demand thing on the food side, right? On the end user side. And where do we end up there? Like that, that's the one thing that I've, I've started thinking about too, is like, we haven't talked about the equalizer and this whole thing with, you know, the commodity costs and everything like that. You know, the, the best fruit plant in the world, have all the money in the world to, to treat everything, right? But if the weather doesn't, doesn't go your way, you're kind of screwed, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you cannot, uh, overcome mother nature and, I think of this in a different light as well because a few weeks ago I had a very interesting conversation with somebody. And what was that? That that conversation was about household budgeting. You see I am under the idea that as if the pandemic hasn't hammered this home, we are in very different times right now where there's scarcity. There's lack. I mean, my words to this person were, I'm sorry, this is not 1960 anymore. We're in a different time and my key word in these different times is basic you know efficiency and not taking anything for granted because we just don't have it we just don't have it i mean i had to suffer through a b-grade roast for christmas <laughs> did did at least okay. one person there know the Heimlich, right? Well, I managed to make it so that it wasn't like bubblegum or boot leather, but <laughs> it was nowhere near my usual standard. It was nowhere near my usual sure standard. That if somebody had to break out the Heimlich, uh no one no one was accosted in any way that they did not appreciate or Oh, and, uh, and man, be a deal breaker. Uh, I'm quite good at administering the Heimlich. Oh, you are. Yeah. Yes. Yes, he is. Yeah. 
I, I'd be quite good at it. I mean, if it were poor Matt, you'd see that bison uh, chunk fly out of his mouth and hit the pretty boy right smack in his head. <laughs> and, and one more thing I just wanted to highlight here on this next article, and this is Again, another one of the building pieces we've been talking about with instability and fertilizer pricing is natural gas availability, right? Um, natural gas has been a tight crunch on, on uh, as a global sector. And um, one of the things that originally we had budgeted for was a 1% colder winter in the United States. Uh, that was what we had in reserves. Of course, we sold a little bit of that to Europe in the quest to uh, mitigate any potentials for famine so they could get yields up because they were so low on nitrogen. And now what we have here is a polar vortex. And the polar vortex right now is being held off uh, pretty significantly and limited to uh, the western half of the United States, northwestern half of the United States and to Canada. However, they are forecasting that the shelf that is containing the polar vortex is is not uh, going to hold it off forever. And when it does, and the polar vortex makes its way to the southeastern United States, uh, be ready because we're going to be in for a long-term cold. And when it says long-term, you know, we're not talking about like six months of cold or something like that, you know, but it could be, um, you know, upwards of a month, four weeks that we're dealing with cold, two weeks, four weeks, somewhere in there. And if that is the case, and remember, we're only budgeting a 1% colder, we start having major freeze events in areas that are not uh, prepared for freezing events like we saw in uh, Texas this last year, then that could put tighter supply on an already tight uh, uh, agricultural, I mean, uh, uh, natural gas market, which could increase the cost of inputs. And like we were talking about with break-even prices with corn, those costs per bushel are going to go up significantly again and further pressuring (laughs) the food supply, inflation, everything that we're dealing with right now. So. Again, I'm not sounding the alarm right now. I'm 100% not, but I bring all this up to say is that the puzzle pieces are here again. We saw them previously when they were formed, and unfortunately, the dominoes did fall. Here, they're laid out again, and the potential for it to happen. Let's see what happens, and who knows? Who knows how it all plays out? But it's um, to add insult to to, to injury, Unfortunately, we're in the same level of a predicament that we were previously in that ultimately went the wrong way. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, this one will go the right way. I got to ask, guys, are y'all sounding the alarm? Are you, where, are, you, are you in a good, healthy headspace over this? Are you freaking out? I'm, I'm actually, I'm okay right now. I'm okay. Hey, if you're okay. I'm already, then... no, I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. Because it seems to me that the first place to get hit by something as fundamental as a food shortage is Hawaii. Yeah, we're first, Matt. It's true. You're import first. dependent. And, and, of course, somebody, I think it was Aldo, dear Aldo, he said, so that means that in Hawaii, it's not a matter of not getting what you pay for. I told them, Aldo, 
it can be to the point where you could have a million dollars in your hands and that million dollars does you no damn good. Because instead of a standing money, rib roast of a cow, you may be eating a standing rib roast of a mark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Howie. Exactly. Uh, you yeah, know. It, it, <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Uh, I get it for Ray. It's uh, the winter thing, the the weather thing here. Of where the where does that put us, and where does that end up? You know, I I look at that quite frequently just to know you know for my own personal knowledge and i'm not a weather forecaster not a meteorologist but i i don't know that it's going to be particularly hard at least through january it's going to be cold but not you know record setting nothing like what we had last february so mm. wait and see wait and see you know it's been uh you know here in the eastern half of the united states where there's you know the the lion's share of the demand um for natural gas and for some of these other raw inputs that go into the fertilizer production, it's been a very, very mild winter so far. Um, now it looks like it's going to turn here next week and get more seasonable, but that gives me hope that we got this far without really having to turn up the dial really at all. So let's just see what happens. I'll be the optimist this time. Good boy. All right, gentlemen, uh, real quick, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. And this week's sponsor is the Patreon. Listen, uh, we are in a campaign right now to get to 69 patrons. Nice. And there is a magic to the number 69. And you know what the magic is? Um, No, it is not the Heimlich. It is, uh, I mean, Heimlich, it is the... We want to do we want to do movie nights. Look, I have seen a handful of movies in my life, and the the gentlemen on the show, uh, the 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 folks in the audience are, are co producers. Um, they, you know they they want me to become a little more cultured, and uh, and so we're we're nineteen away. We're on a big push here. If you can spare the cost of an airport beer to support and get all the additional content that we throw out, we do we do. You know, stuff like, you know, the show before the show that are specifically for the sponsors or after Thursday, Thursday, you know, we do the show after the show uh, that we do for the uh, for the patrons here. And and so if you're interested in that little bit and you can and you can, if you can't, don't worry about it. No problem. We're we're not we're not here to chastise you because you're not a patron. However, if you can, if you're of means, feel free to check it out and. Hopefully, we'll be able to get in on some movie nights, and I can become a contributing member of society at some point in my life. Until then, we'll continue the campaign to reach 69 nice patrons. All right, gentlemen, my favorite segment of the show. Let's check out this week's Burns. Sheila knows no bounds when it comes to this week's burns. And the first one, gentlemen, is a a page straight from Sheila's playbook. And this was recorded on a podcast called Keep Off the Grass. And if you've never seen it, highly recommend you go check it out. Uh, You can type in on the the boob tube there, Keep Off the Grass livecast. And, um, and, you know, I, I tune in from time to time. I think they do a good job. They have some interesting guests on. 
And uh, even though I don't agree with everything the guests say, I think it's it's worth uh, to, the, the spurring of the conversations that exist. In this particular episode, they brought on six, I believe it was, six uh, uh, PhD turfgrass um, uh, uh, turf grass educators uh, that have outstanding reputations from the industry. And we're talking about from schools like LSU, um, Purdue, University of Kentucky. Um, you know, these are tenured guys that have you know legitimate careers in the research space of what we do. And one of the questions was posed to them about the how 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 was it phrased? Does it does it go off at the start of this? I'll tell you what. After the intro there, uh J Ping, I believe this starts at 19 seconds. If we can start at 19 seconds and just kind of listen in here at what's being said. just as a way to balance the magnesium as a metal. So once uh, it enters the soil and it's subject to uh, hydrolysis, it should, the magnesium should become available. You know, when we deal with fertilizer labels, we're oftentimes dealing with guaranteed minimum analyses, right? You know, what's, what's legally allowed to be expressed on that label that's guaranteed to be in that bag. And through, you know, all, all these chemical um, chemical labels sort of fall under certain umbrellas. And so fertilizers fall under different things that might be similar to other industries. And so the oxides are just a way of expressing oftentimes uh, a certain type of element that's in there. The plant doesn't really use the oxides. The plant uses those elements. You know, when we learn about soil fertility, we learn about things like potassium, or we learn about nitrogen, we learn about phosphorus or iron or some of these other kinds of things. The oxide is a way that sometimes things are expressed based on a weight basis. So the short answer, ignore it. Okay. You're looking for, does it have iron? Does it have potassium? Does it have sulfur? Does it have some of these other kinds of things? That's, that's the true important piece. But, but backing up if they're, if they're doing a deep dive on the micronutrient piece. Okay. Well, it right we, there real quick, JP. And according to the uh, the title of the video here, you know, it is do micronutrient sources matter? And we heard a very bizarre answer there from Dr. Biglove, Purdue University, and it can come across many different ways. And when I I've, I first heard that, I I did not understand his answer whatsoever, and uh, and so. I thought, well, you know, here, let's reach out to a bunch of people because I was having a, a mild aneurysm. And uh, I said, here, I'll tell you who I'll reach out to. I'll shoot uh, myself an email to Turf Truth and uh, and get their take on it. And I had pretty good feedback from Turf Truth. And Turf Truth said that they believed that the bizarreness of the original answer from Dr. Bigelow was due to the fact that he misunderstood the question. And that would also uh, parlay over to uh, Dr. Beasley and, and his statements there. Um, now, that being said, uh, while they felt like they did not understand the question and thought it had to do more with labeling, we'll see as we continue on with this clip here, uh, there's a little bit of an effort to move back to, the, uh, uh, um, to, to correct the original statements. And let's hear how that kind of plays out from this point forward. We have a situation that oftentimes happens in the Midwest, and um, it's it's called summer-induced iron chlorosis, where basically in the late summer, we will get these chlorotic conditions that do typically happen with Kentucky bluegrass, 
And so oftentimes that's an iron deficiency that usually people like Mike or Greg would, would not be as likely to see. Now, if you have a choice between using a liquid foliar applied iron product or a granular iron product, the liquids tend to alleviate those conditions uh, a little bit better than the granular product. Awesome. So yeah, that, that has. So in there, that was a, a, an attempt to uh, re-clarify the previous statement because uh, in, uh, according to, you know, Turf Truth's take on this and watching it with context, it was a much longer clip, that, the clip that's been cut up here. Um, said that was an effort to, uh, to, to try and rectify what was previously said because pre- previously said it doesn't matter. Um, you know, it comes down to labeling and when you're labeling, you know, you're looking for certain inputs that de- deliver the elements and it doesn't really pertain to do micronutrient sources matter. Is there a difference in oxide nutrient availability was how the question was later clarified. And here they say, well, in the event of your dealing of you dealing with summertime chlorosis, they tend to get better performance out of a liquid product versus a granular product. And in this particular instance, we can assume or infer, which does, you know, make an ass out of you and me, but he's referring to oxides versus a liquid. And you cannot have a liquid uh, oxide micronutrient unless it's been through some sort of chelation process to sequester the uh, the, uh, the Fe3 ions um, or some other acid that would uh, uh, create a, uh, an environment that would allow that iron oxide to be dissolved because we can dissolve uh, with rust, right? And that can be dissolved with, with iron. That can be dissolved with acids. The point here, the point here, and when I originally heard this, and, and Ray and Ryan, this is where I want you all to chime in on this, was my initial reaction was, we've got Dr. Greg Munshaw on here. And Jay Ping, I sent you a headline to um, a publication that was released through the University of, of Kentucky. If you want to throw that up, uh, the, the headline states, Iron for Kentucky Turf Grasses. And cited as, auth- uh, as authors of this publication is Dr. Travis Shaddix and Dr. Greg Munshaw, Plant and Soil Sciences. Now, later on in the article, I will get down to the section where they speak specifically about iron oxide. And when we get to here, and I'll read the area that's highlighted here, it says, no turf grass response to iron oxide has been documented in university studies. Iron oxide and all forms of iron oxide should not be used as a turf grass fertilizer. The point here, the point here is that one of the guests on this show, Dr. Greg Munshaw, is being quoted as one of the authors of this publication. However, while sitting on this live cast in this bizarre answer that's coming from Dr. Bigelow and the even further uh, lack of clarification in the attempt to clarify it did not chime in. My initial thought, and this could be because I'm just a crazy person, was that, well, there's an overwhelming amount of fear of having research dollars interfered with by the blender, baggers, manufacturers of the industry, right? Because if you go trash talking iron oxides as a micronutrient, and in my opinion, uh, according to the publication that was released from Travis Shaddix and Greg Munshaw, I would infer that if it should not be used as a turf grass fertilizer and no uh, plant response has been documented in university studies, I would refer to that as 
worthless. There is no value, there is no worth to applying that product. And that is direct from university research. And him, in the, the team having the inability to make that comment, my mind immediately goes to fear. They're too scared to publicly state for fear of retribution or reprimand uh, from the manufacturers, granulators, baggers, uh, blenders that are out there. Turf Truth said, uh, this is likely not the case because these guys are tenured. And um, more than likely what it is is that they are not soil micronutrient redox specialists. And... Perhaps maybe the best answer in this scenario was to say, I don't know, instead of the bizarrely complicated and not very clear answer that was given. Um, so, gentlemen, I'll turn this over to you. What was your takeaway when you heard this? Because I had an aneurysm. I'm recovered now. They, they had to drill a hole in the side of my head. <laughs> and uh, after after they did a little bloodletting, I I felt better. Leeches were next up on the list if the hole in my head didn't work. Ray, you want to go first, or you want me to? No, I uh, you you go ahead, uh, Ryan, because uh, I'm still recovering from my little aneurysm or stroke. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. I in. If you watch the whole clip, and they they didn't do a good job of laying out like in the pursuit of this, and I've met the guy that asked the question. He's a great guy. I think you know he has best intentions in asking it, um, uh, and I think what it's trying to do is clear up something that was sort of brought to the forefront this past summer, where you know you had uh, Matt put out a video about oxide forms of micronutrients and why they're basically ineffective and sort of highlighting the research that uh, Dr. Shaddix uh, and his colleagues put out, right? And then you also had Turf Truth that put out a video, and I can't remember which one it was in. I, it might have been a Freedom Fruit one or something like that where they talked specifically about um, those forms really not doing any good for you, right, in terms of putting those down. So I can see why it would be uh, a valid question to ask in that setting with those folks. Now, that being said, the question could have been formed a little bit better to say specifically micronutrients and specifically oxide forms when they're applied as a granular, what happens to those particular nutrients? Are they taken up? Is there any value to it? And what would an academic recommend, right? Those are really sort of the, I think, the points that they were trying to get after. So when it gets lobbed to them, you know, I, uh, the answer and how it was danced around and not really like drilled on upon of, of saying, you know, there's a lot of things they could have said, right? The first thing they could have said, well, why do you need micronutrients in the first place? Have you soil tested? Have you done this? Have you done that? Kind of gone down the best practices route. Didn't hear that. There was also the piece of knowing, you know, some of the research that was recently conducted and what is out there right currently in terms of uh, what's recommended as best practices for oxide use. And it's just, Hey, it's, it's not worth it. You're not going to get anything out of it. So I don't claim and fault these guys for not knowing every single answer right off the tip of their tongue. Right. You know, it's not necessarily jeopardy. That being said, 
it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, Hey, can you, re-, you know, ask the question again? And certainly, you know, we've all been in that case where we've been put on the spot. Maybe they felt like that. Maybe they didn't. I don't know, but I would love to have these guys on our show and dig deeper into this type of this line of questioning, not necessarily to, again, put anybody on the spot, not necessarily to show anybody up. That's not the whole point. The whole point is if we ask better questions, if we, well, if we ask better questions, we will uncover what we know and what we don't know. And that's what we're always after, right? There's a certain point and, and, and I've said this before about turf truth too. There is a certain point to things that we need, have neither the means nor the methods to know about turf grass management. Simply don't. If there's a pot of gold somewhere that's going to fund all this research to find out shit that really maybe some companies might have thought about and looked into with their own private research, but probably not because there's no value in understanding the answer to that question. It's purely scientific or scientific and purely uh, you know, self-indulgent to a certain point if you're a geek like us. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little far off topic here other than to say that ask better questions. That's my, the whole thing after thinking about this is that ask better questions. And if you don't know the answer, it's okay to say that. And I, I get that, that these guys are very well educated. They're very well respected. Nobody's dissing them. We're just saying it's okay to not know and let's figure it out and let's talk about it because I, I think we can all agree. Right. I think Matt, you made the point. You know, we can put rust in, uh, you know, a glass of deionized water. What's going to dissolve in that? And what's going to be taken up by the plant? None of it. None of it. So, and Ray, what do you think? Well, what I think is uh, there's nothing wrong with saying you don't know. There's nothing wrong with also saying. This is not my area of expertise uh, because I'm kind of fond of admitting that early on, until I, I just tell people, this is not something that I routinely deal with. And so I'm not uh, the best person to ask. However, I do know people where this is their area of expertise. and. Uh, you may go uh, ask them, and they probably will have a better answer than me. <laughs> but uh, at no time do I recommend tap dancing around something or giving the appearance that I'm there to sell something or to protect the sale of something, even because that was my initial impression is when I saw that clip my immediate impulse was okay who are these people protecting yeah, that, that was I, my initial impression having a few days to sit on it and and relax and calm down you know i i can agree that they probably are, are not trying to protect anybody um and you know depending on where they're you know i guess the thing that i forget is that 
When I do a deep dive on a topic, I tend to remember it really well. And I go to a pretty extreme degree to understand that topic, even to the point where I'm doing simple experiments in a lab to be able to understand exactly what takes place, right? Where I'm manipulating the pH of water to simulate a nutrient solution that the plant is ultimately trying to take up to see what precipitates, what doesn't. Because as we all know, plants don't eat solids, right? They, they actually take up nutrients through whatever's in solution, whatever's dissolved in the water, right? And, and so when, when I do that, it's fresh on my mind. It's, 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 it's deep into my brain. It's been burned in. I've done hands-on experiments with it very recently within the last year, right? And they may not have done that in the last 20 years or 30 years, depending on where they are in their career. And what they may be working on is genetic modification of Bermuda grass cross with something else. And, and they may be thinking something at the, uh, at the electron level, you know, where all of a sudden we're talking about something at the iron oxide level, right? And you're just like, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't even correlate. It doesn't even fall into the same category. However, again, why I feel like this can be a, a problem and it's as, you know, this gets, you know, put back out into the internet space as an education tool is that it is indeed a perpetuation of something that is 100% not true. And I don't think that was necessarily the intent of the cut that was put together here. However, by starting off of do micronutrient sources make sense, and the original statement from Dr. Bigelow is it's not important, it's nothing you need to worry about, that becomes the dominant piece and the message of what that video is. And that is 100%, no matter how you slice it, according to research, according to experiments, according to field use, managerial use, academia, it is 100% not true. That is bullshit. And according to Turf Truth, rates everything on the bullshit scale. That is a bullshit of, well, nine or what, however, however high he goes. And that's why I feel it's necessary to say something about it because I feel like the question was a direct contrast of what was unpacked through an analysis of already existing research and the simplified experiments that I did to demonstrate why the research is what it is, right? And uh, and so, you know, if it's going to be so blatantly uh, uh, put forth in such a way that makes everything that I did look like a, a crock of bullshit, and again, my goal is preservation and evolution of the industry, right? That's why I have these people that are smarter than I am on. Uh, then I feel like it does need to be corrected. And I do want to make clear that every PhD on that show has uh, more IQ in their 10 fingers than I do in my lifetime or that I could ever I could ever get to be. I do not have that level of intelligence, and that's why it's probably easy to confuse these guys when you start talking about something as rudimentary as iron oxide availability because, again, they're working on things infinitely more complex than what that is. And that's why they could all of a sudden think, well, maybe it's a labeling question. Maybe it's similar to a conversion from K to K2O or P to P2O5. Something that, you know, they learned in Turfgrass 101 and, you know, now they're 30 years removed from it. And they've, you know, got a PhD in, in dissertations, defense, dissertation defense and all that fun stuff. So anyway, I felt the need to clarify that. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, Ryan, like you said, I think absolutely we should have these guys on to do a deeper dive into it. Or, or as Turf Truth said, that there are 10 uh, uh, turf grass professors 
who can answer that micronutrient question correctly. And though none of them were in the video, they are out there. And, uh, and uh, you know, find those soil micronutrient redox specialists, have them on and rephrase the question and the intent of it in a different manner and, uh, and see what pops out on the other side in that way, right? So I've talked way too much through this. Um, gentlemen, is there anything else you want to add before we move on to the next article here? I yield my time. I yield my right. time as well. <laughs> All right. Let's check out this next one here. And I bring it up. I bring this up as just a real quick follow-up to, oh, uh, you know, our friends over in Sri Lanka. For those of you who don't remember, Sri Lanka attempted to go all organic and uh, and it failed miserably. And then they brought in a load of organic fertilizer from China. And China's been funding their industrial revolution that's taken place in Sri Lanka and all that fun stuff. And being big supporters of their organic revolution as well. And uh, and so through the infrastructure development and organic changing, and uh, it turns out it didn't work. And, you know, well, now they're worried about starving to death. And so what happened? Well, <coughs> their uh, minister uh, of agricultural ministry secretary started talking about maybe what the plans are in dealing with food shortages, uh, because they're talking about food shortages extending for multiple years because not only did they pick the worst time in history to move over to organic when conventional fertilizers are no longer available, but how long is it going to take to get their yields up? They're talking about multiple years. So now the agricultural minister here is saying, uh, you know, well, this is probably how we're going to handle it. So uh, with the food shortage coming before young people, people like pregnant women, children, and the unwell absolutely need more sustenance ought to be prioritized. Uh, we are for a program where milk and essential food are prioritized, and the people who tend to eat more may perhaps sacrifice a little and stop consuming imported foods like apples and oranges. We do not wish to cover up the issue and offer deceptive answers, he said. Well, for his statements there, he was fired. Mind you, this is their <laughs> fifth, their fifth person to take the position in two years, the fourth of just 2021. This is a very volatile climate because we're talking about a major population of people starving. And we're not talking about a little bit of starving. We're talking about potential of death of starving, starving because of this grandiose idea of becoming an organic production country. That's all I wanted to hop on, give you a little update on that. And now we'll check out the next one here. Organic fertilizers have an inorganic problem. A lack of regulations on the term organic and, ag and agriculture input products can confuse farmers and gardeners. And turf when grass professionals. And, and turf grass professionals. Lots of them. When Keegan Hillary, uh, yeah, Hilaire sent his mother, Maureen Hilaire, to get worm poop fertilizer for their backyard garden in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania last March, one shopping trip turned into two, one online research session followed by another. The mother-son team had to make sure the products advertised as organic were, in fact, approved to be used under the USDA organic standards. Maybe I'm just pessimistic, but I assume all of them are lying to me. Keegan Hilaire, a city dweller turned rookie farmer, told DHN, transitioning his Blackbird Farms into a mouse, Pennsylvania, to be USDA certified organic in spring of 2021, Hilaire considered the one-eighth of an acre uh, home garden as his practical organic production. Hilaire has to be vigilant. The USDA currently does not regulate organic labels on farming supplies such as fertilizer. Just seeing the word organic does not necessarily mean it is an approved organic input material. That 
I'll tell you right now, gentlemen, is not true. Uh, we have a series of labeling laws uh, that exist in the country that is regulated by uh, a group. I'm drawing a blank on the name of this group right now, but let me tell you, you put organic on a label that is not organic, and they will shut your ass down. AFCO. Omri? Oh, AFCO. AFCO, yeah. AFCO. Yeah, they were. If you're going to claim, Mm -hmm. if you're going to claim organic, you better have an AFCO-approved company that certified your product. And and you also have to deal with Omri. Omri as well, and Omri gets rather serious because Omri is the organization that uh, does independent analysis of your product. <laughs> yeah, and not to throw shade at Omri, but uh, Omri can be paid off. It depends on how much you uh, release of your revenue per product. It depends on mm-hmm. how stringent that independent analysis is. And, uh, you know, you did not hear that from me, by the way. Um, but the point of the article here is that there are a lot of products out there that are believed to be organic because at one time they probably were, or the bags that had organic on them haven't been changed over to the non-organic labels and they're living kind of this odd line like the applicators in North Carolina did that eventually got caught, um, you know, with things like, you know, that have biosolids in it, for example, right? And biosolids lost its right to be claimed as organic. And, uh, and you do see it out there in direct violation of the law. And this is a law now. And it's up to AFCO to be able to find this and prosecute it at this point. So here we are. Gentlemen, do organic fertilizers have an, or, an organic problem? Well, I mean, absolutely. I think there's, there's no question that the term organic fertilizer in turf grass, like let's, let's leave agriculture, food production, all that stuff out of it for a minute, right? Let's just talk about turf and the what is thought to be or perceived to be by buyers, right? Professional and otherwise, organic is not organic, right? And so I think there, there's a very, very clear distinction there that people need to be aware of that they're not. And Matt, to your point, I mean, you, you see this stuff with the biosolids, especially. Where again, not dogging them. There's a place for them. They can be used. There's no, you know, there's certain assumed risks, just like anything else that we put out there, right? And to sit there and hang your hat on uh, being an organic lawn warrior, for example, right? You really need to understand what that means. I love you, Joe. You really need to understand what that means before you make such an assertion and such a statement, right? And that is, that's the defining line. I mean, I think, I don't know if I said this, uh, well, I will say it. It's too late. I don't think there's a statute of limitations on this. So um, I was told this story about a, uh, a company that is a organic lawn care provider, right? It's in their name. And uh, the situation presented itself. that There was a very high population of broadleaf weeds, Ray. Right. And so mm-hmm. they're talking about some of the, you know, the EPA 25B, and I'll allow you to explain what 25B is. But said, you know, hey, we'll deal with this. And, you know, the pushback was, well, there's a lot of stuff out here. Like, is that going to be enough? And their response was, well, if we have to spray a little tenacity too, we'll do that. And it's like, wait a second. What? <laughs> what? 
that's no that's you know that's like bringing the bottle of the aa meeting ray you can't do that Mm -hmm. you don't yeah so explain here we're talking about fertilizers here but just organic as a whole right i want to hear your thoughts on you know where people are going with uh organic fertilizers i think they work i think they're fine there's nothing wrong with them. i want to state that very clearly also there is some limited risk stuff out there that shows a lot of promise uh there's some stuff out there right now um with parasitic nematodes for white grubs that it's extremely promising however they can't produce it in such numbers that it's commercially viable that's the biggest problem that we have on some of this new stuff is that they just can't make enough of it to make it commercially viable so we're in a rock between a rock and a hard place here of trying to implement something that's new and effective and organic without relying on something that well hey it's organic and we hope it works Right. Well, your organic products, now, they have to, again, pass through those two organizations. And you know what those two organizations check for? Is those two organizations check for, one, synthetic uh, chemicals of any kind, two, Persistent uh, organic contaminants, and lastly, heavy metals. And Mm -hmm. when you said biosolids, the current talk or the current event right now is how much heavy metals and persistent organic contaminants are transferred via biosolids, for example. And then the other thing about you said something about 25b product <laughs> yeah 25b yeah. product are explain what 25b products, products are okay i believe 25b products are made of or consist entirely of materials that are not EPA registered, they're considered exempt from EPA registration because mm-hmm. they do not contain any EPA regulated active ingredients. Okay. However, however, I do know that a lot of those uh, materials are still registered and allowed and disallowed on a state-by-state basis for example a lot of 25b type products never make it into my state i can believe that no and and you know why they don't make it into my state why not there's not enough satisfactory evidence that they're effective well, and see... then there's problems like uh, mm. uh, Ecomite and Whack Out Weeds. Wow. Uh, labeled mm. as 2,5-B exempt uh, pesticide mm. or glyphosate alternatives, mm. right? And then it turns out, well, sorry, it was actually 50% of it was glyphosate. So you see that? Yeah, too? yeah. I, yeah, you remember uh, that exempt product that we... Uh, Talked about on an earlier burn and return uh, several months ago that come to find out it had all kinds of good shit in it. 
right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Let's see. Carbaryl. We got glyph- yeah, glyphosate carbaryl permethrin. What could that possibly not kill, Matt? <laughs> Just asking. <laughs> I don't know, but it was labeled with lemon oil and uh, a surfactant and a soap of a fatty acid or something. So it was 2,5-B mm-hmm. exempt according to the label, but all of a sudden mm-hmm. it got this and turns out it wasn't. So, it, <laughs> I mean, in, from that alone, yes, organic in general has an or inorganic problem, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the whole thing, you know, listen. Leave it to the bad actors to find a way to manipulate any system to generate revenue that they don't deserve, right? It's the nature of how things are, and unfortunately, it's going to continue to exist. And the same thing's going to, it will continue to go on with organic uh, uh, fertilizer production, too. And listen, you know, it's intended that there's a certain amount of traceability that even occurs when you go back to, you know, say, for instance, if you're using poultry litter, you have to go back to the feed the feed that is fed to the the birds right before they defecate it and you harvest it and granulate and all that fun stuff. And let me tell you, even that through uh, 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 companies like Omri or uh, there's another one out of Oregon, the Oregon farmer, something, something they do fertilizer certifications. And, you know, they have different stringency on how, on how they, they do that and how far, how much traceability they employ to come up with this. And so it's not, they're, they're, it's definitely not standardized at this time. And I think if people see an opportunity, they tend to take advantage of it. And what's disappointing about the whole thing though, is that those same people that are in love with bio salads and top dressing it at four inches on their lawn and planning into it and feeling great. And they point at people like you and uh, Ryan and say, you guys are the problem. You guys are killing your soil. You guys don't care about the environment. You guys are a toxic wasteland. When in reality, I, mm-hmm. everything they're doing is a crock of, well, what's the word I'm looking for? Bullshit. Bullshit. Thank you. Because, Matt, everything I apply or deal with, my God, it has analysis, including heavy metal analysis, and presence of foreign items in it now. Because when I deal with something like, say, 2100 or even potassium nitrate, holy crap, uh, there cannot be anything in that bag other than the 2100 or the potassium nitrate, for example. And if there is something other than, you know, the stated item, there's trouble. I mean, in actual practice, the synthetic, so-called synthetic or chemical fertilizers are extremely regulated, right? They're extremely regulated regarding their content. I mean, for example, you cannot have, like, uh, even ferrous sulfate, you know, good old iron sulfate, Ryan. Yeah. Did you know that ferrous sulfate cannot have iron beyond the iron? It cannot have traces of cadmium, arsenic, mercury, or lead in it. I mean, mm-hmm. even my bag of ferrous sulfate, goodness mm-hmm. me, 
I mean, it has to be basically chemically pure ferrous sulfate and nothing else. And the manufacturer is required to have that level of product integrity. I think the big, the big overriding thing here, overarching thing is that, you know, especially this year, and we've got, we've gone over this, we've, you know, not beat it to death yet, but you know, we, we get there close to it every week is that know what you're using and know why you're using it. You know, we had that, we had a really fantastic conversation with turfology a couple of weeks ago on Thursday, Thursday. I thought it was one of the better conversations we've had with mm-hmm. any of the pros out there. And that's not the disparage people have been on, on our other show, but Matt made a point that, you know, when you're a pro, when you walk into some place and say, this is what I want to buy. This is what I'm using. And you know what it's going to do. And you have full expectation, full confidence of what it's going to do and what it's not going to do and what it shouldn't be marketed as or what it should be marketed as. And so, again, if you're not there and if you're not sure, just like we talked about in the previous segment, ask yourself some harder questions. Ask yourself some better questions and figure out, Matt, the why. Explaining mm-hmm. the why, sorry, Jesse, my new YouTube channel is going to be over explaining the why of law, and uh, there's nothing you can do to change my mind about it. Um, <laughs> let's check out on this extended burn section here. Uh, let's check out this last article. Uh, Mexico's wheat fields help feed the world. They're also releasing a dangerous greenhouse gas. Um, so short end of the stick here, exactly what's going on is when nitrogen is applied to fields that have nothing growing in it, um, unfortunately, a lot of the nitrogen can be released into the atmosphere as nitrous oxide grass. And according to some of the things we see here is that uh, emerging scientific evidence suggests that Mexico's emissions of nitrous oxide are significantly underestimated. Emissions may be double or even quadruple what the country reports. It's a problem that the Mexican government acknowledged in the Washington Post for the story. As a contributor to to climate change, nitrous oxide remains a mysterious villain, crudely measured and less studied than carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. But it has caused 6.5% of the world's current warming, and its concentrations in the atmosphere is growing at an accelerating rate, surpassing even some of the worst projections. The gas is 265 times more powerful than carbon dioxide and heating the atmosphere over a period of 100 years. It depletes the planet ozone layer, and it lingers in the air for more than a century. and here in particular, they're saying that due to the farming methods employed in Mexico is that there is an unfortunate huge amount of nitrous oxide that's being released from uh, the, the the fields here. Gentlemen, I want you all to kind of kind of dive in on this. Uh, what, do, what do you think? Is this a, a, a uh, is this something where as educators need to be on the ground floor teaching? different farming methods to these uh, uh, countries that may not have had exposure to the latest advancement in agriculture? Would that be a solution? What is the solution? I don't know. Uh, you know, it's, it's education and awareness, first and foremost, that, you know, the, here's, here's the bottom line right now as, as to where it stands. There's a good quote from the article here that says, for the farmer, the cost of fertilizing too much is less than the cost of fertilizing too little. Okay? The cost of fertilizing too much is less than the cost of fertilizing too little. You know, so I think 
some of this hopefully gets worked out just by the markets and the fact that it ain't going to be cheap to fertilize anymore. It's not going to be uh, 10 years ago where you could slug out there whatever you wanted to and it didn't really matter. How quickly mm-hmm. that makes its way down to Mexico, eh, I don't know. We'll have to see. Excuse me. Um, you know, they talk a little bit too about somebody we've discussed on this show, Norman Borlaug, who, um, you know, won a Nobel Prize because of his uh, teaching of and development of a specific kind of agriculture and breeding techniques that allowed for uh, basically industrialized agriculture as we know it today, right? It's advanced, obviously, since he was involved, but what they talk about, there's a statue of him there because, you know, he was credited as feeding the world, right? The guy that fed the world and the way that he um, developed and implemented and taught uh, this method of industrialized agriculture. And so it's hard for them to break away from this, you know, this reliance on fertilizer uh, because that was a huge, huge component of, of what Borlaug uh, preached. And so, you know, you look at where this is going and it's now time. It's, it's the right time to get out there and, and teach the four R's, right? Which is another article coming up here that we'll talk about related mm-hmm. to that. But, the question is, Ray, who who's going to do this? Because there is no, you know, extension agent, at least that I know of, you know, in Mexico. I'm not sure how it works in some of these developing nations. There are. There are, there how, are do we, actually, how do we do this? It, there are actually educators uh, well, from uh, the various universities in Mexico, and they basically have to fight against tradition and they have to throw her down exactly they they got to fight against some really i'm going to call lazy practices because i got asked on the discord and this person really wanted to know why do growers insist on throwing down fertilizer in the fall on bare ground, knowing that they're not going to plant actually until spring? And I said, the basic reason why is because it is cheaper labor and time-wise to just blast out on top of a barren field rather than put down the material precisely at planting time or side dress the crop after the crop has has been put in the ground. I mean, there is a certain cost and logistical issue. However, speaking to what we've been talking about, at what point does fertilizer become so expensive that nobody can afford to throw down, say, 200 pounds per acre of nitrogen six months before you're actually going to plant? At what point does it get to be so damned astronomically expensive that Oh, Lord, uh, 
UAN or anhydrous is no longer dirt cheap anymore. I mean, at what point do we are, do we get there to where precisely placing the product at the actual point of use and when it's actually going to be used becomes more economical than just throwing it down? I'm going to ask this question to the panel real quick: Is at what point? do we get to this point in turf right that i'm just saying that there are there is a whether you're a pro i don't care what's what side of you on pro diy golf sports mm. lawn care whatever there is a, a subset of people in this industry that are lazy by default meaning that they over apply mm. so that just the same thing here with the fertilizer right that we t- or the fertilizer mm-hmm. quote that it's cheaper for them to over-apply than to under-apply, right, in terms of the cost of doing business. So what's going to break this? Is it going to be the fertilizer prices? Is it going to be uh, some epiphany of environmental awareness? Is it going to be people like us just beating it into their heads that they need to do better? I, I, I'm at a loss. I don't know what that's going to take. I really don't. You know what? I think I, I think it's going to be... Uh, none of the above where I, I, I'm, I'm a pessimist in that what, here's what's going to happen is once the activists get a hold of the information or the statement made in this article, you know what they're going to call for in Mexico? They're going to go down to Mexico and literally pull the Sri Lanka in Mexico. They're going to do it. They're going to say, okay, no more chemicals, no more fertilizer, party's over. And likewise, to answer your question, laziness and enough, don't give a, don't give a fuck, is going to be what basically kills the golf and turf grass fertilization industry for us too. You know, enough of that uh, don't care. Uh, it's cheaper for me to do it this way is going to be what finally gives ammunition to the activists and they now have enough ammunition to torpedo us. Uh, we're going to end up like the USS Arizona. Sorry. I have a bit more of an optimistic view on it. And I, I think, I think there will be a shift. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's cultural, right? So all of the things that, uh, Ryan mentioned will be necessary. I think there's going to have to be turnover within the industry when the old heads move out that did it a certain way. I think there's going to have to be Mm -hmm greater educational opportunities for people that are within the industry and continuing education. I think there's going to have to continue to be people like us that beat down the doors and, and remind people that there is an evolution occurring within the industry. And I think the evolution is already occurring. It may not be happening at the appropriate pace, but I can tell you that, you know, with as many people reach out to us with uh, a, a positive praise or words of encouragement or keep going. Thank you for what you do is because there are people out there that genuinely care about um, uh, moving towards a, a more 
sustainable approach or long-term uh, uh, positive impact approach to what they do out there. And, and I, I think is, as the, the research dollars increase, as automations increase, as uh, data analytics increase, you know, we're going to continue to develop and uh, have data sets that we can all look at and make those individual changes that will uh, allow us to do better things as as managers while we're out there, right? So I, it was funny, uh, Ray, you said... <laughs> You said what, uh, or Ryan said, what is it going to take? And Ray, Ray said, none of it, none of it is going to fix it. It, it. They're all going to shut it down. And I, I tried to take a little bit of more of an optimistic approach and say, well, it's going to take all of, all of it is required in order for there to be a change. So I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. And that's one of the things that we can continue to check in on. But I'll tell you that as heavily as dependent as the United States is on uh, Mexican ag- agriculture, if they did pull a Sri Lanka up, Boy, oh boy! Go! Oh, uh, I don't think the U.S. would even allow that to happen. I think there would be some major, major innov- uh, intervention before that occurred. Um, actually, all of that. I know no, that. Go ahead. Actually, I know already. The United States does try to keep a somewhat of a leash on what goes on in Mexico because. The problem is, is that, you know how I say we export all of the dirtiness and nastiness that we, we don't want in the United States to countries like Mexico? Well, thing is, is that Mexico then exports all of that nastiness and dirtiness back to us in the form of fruits and vegetables, for example. So. <laughs> There is some incentive, for example, to kind of keep things down to a certain degree because we got to eat it. (laughs) Could you imagine the soccer moms at Whole Foods strutting around in their uh, post-bare yoga uh, afterglow wondering where the hell their strawberries in November are? And just having an absolute meltdown. What do you mean there's no strawberries? They're not in season, you dumb bitch. Uh, gentlemen, let's check out this week's returns. one here. There is a path to reduce fertilizer emissions, but it has challenges. More uptake on 4R and better application technology are key, but so is providing the right incentives. Interesting take here. Major reductions in greenhouse gas emissions from fertilizer use are possible through 4R nutrient management, according to the researchers from the University of Guelph. Is it not pronounced that correctly? Is it Guelph? Yep, Guelph? that's it. Yep. Okay. Yes. Uh, but while the 4R job, concept man. is good, right source, right time, right rate, right placement, truly significant reductions lean heavily on achieving each factor simultaneously. For example, getting the right fertilizer on the place is all well and good, but if the timing is poor, fertility is lost as emissions anyway. The kind of elephant in the room is eventually we do need to work on the right rate. That's the toughest nut to crack. You don't want to be standing in the middle of the season saying, oh, I should have applied more. Going right back to what you said. In this area, there are some beneficial application technology, but the other big part is that forecast of what the season is going to be like, what supply from the soil will be available, 
and what the plants need. We can do that based on historical data, but what farmers are looking for is this season. The solution to monitor soils providing alongside crop needs, it is critical to understand how nutrients are lost via water and ammonia for nitrogen and what conditions are conducive to that loss. Combined with on-farm experimentation, growers can determine whether the expense of repeating of repeatedly airing on the side of caution by applying extra fertilizers offset by the occasional yield boost. Uh, and to uh, close this out here, we would like to see a healthy debate around this issue, but I think the best way to achieve better climate outcomes is for farmers, companies, environmental organizations, and governments to work together. That's a pretty feel-good you know, story there. They're, they're trying, and, and rather than just, you know, outright saying, hey, you know, they're talking about using a system of taxing said fertilizer, right? And then using that money to incentivize people who are doing the right thing. So at least it's something, you know, I, I went off on a diatribe about this in the last episode about how, you know, these, uh, these bans, so to speak, have these unintended consequences and there's nothing behind it to support people, at least here they're looking at that i would be interested to hear more about what those incentives look like and is it based on how quickly you catch up is it based on how long you stick with it you know what are all those those metrics that are important to them but uh they got something here ray i think it's i think it's interesting to see that they're they're making strides they're trying yeah yeah that i mean i i kind of love the emphasis on the four r's again because the four r's uh, essentially pick apart that whole idea of throwing down your annual requirement of nitrogen six to eight months before you actually need it for example and even down to the right source. Uh, the cheapest source of nitrogen right now per pound of nitrogen is none other than anhydrous ammonia, right? Uh-huh. But because anhydrous ammonia is a gas or a extremely hydrophilic gas it is hard to keep anhydrous ammonia where you put it like for example you stick two pounds per thousand square foot of anhydrous ammonia into a field Mm -hmm. it's tough to make it so that that two pounds of nitrogen resulting is still there eight months later it's hard. It's really hard to do that. And, you know, the other thing that we don't talk about that I think will be important in this whole thing, they, they, they talked briefly about it, I think, in this, is that it's hard to show how much, you know, uh, fertilizer is lost through volatilization and through runoff, you know, particularly N. Mm-hmm. And I think better ways of quantifying that, you know, to show farmers, hey, like, you put this out here, you know, at this time and you're losing whatever, 45%. But if you put it out at this time, you're losing at most 10%. Those, those are the kind of things that are going to get us over the hump. So I'm, I'm interested to see how it goes. 
and hopefully uh turf you know we can we can lead the way and do some cool stuff with it because our environments are much more controlled than what they are in a farm and i was gonna say i feel like we are maybe not ahead of the curve on this uh but i've it's much easier to um uh, implement right and I, I feel like there's such a focus on it right now, right? Like even, you know, from, from the days of what winterization did look like, right? You know, winterizer for yeah. what it looks like now, you know? Yes. I, yes. I, f- I feel like we have made a lot of these improvements. We have research now that shows us why we should or shouldn't do things. You know, why we're not out there, you know, pre-plant, uh, 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 you know, in, in January, you know, dumping 50 pound bags of map or dap all over our lawns in anticipation of the green up. And that's still a common thing in agriculture. And I don't know if I've ever seen that in turf grass in the last 10 years. So I don't know, kind of a, kind of an interesting uh, thing there. All right, we'll take a look at this next one here. And this is, this has to be exciting for everyone that's out there. And this is a new look at POA control. Mesotrione and amacarbazone tape mixtures for annual bluegrass control in turf, uh, in cool season turf grass. Uh, for those of you that don't know, amacarbazone is also known as exonerate, I believe. Am I right about that? Yes, that's mm-hmm. exonerate. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. uh, that is the super herbicide if you know how to apply it correctly. That's correct. Well, in <laughs> this particular instance here, uh, amacarbazone and mesotrione were put together in tank mixes of mature annual bluegrass and uh, cool season turf. Uh, and let's see here. In 2019, results in New Jersey were similar to 2018, where amacarbazone alone provided less control than mesotrione and amacarbazone tank mixtures. In Indiana, where the annual bluegrass infestation was severe and most mature, Tank mixes were more effective than amacarbazone alone at six weeks after initial treatment, but at 12 weeks after initial treatment, all treatments provided poor control. In Iowa, where the annual bluegrass infestation was less than a year old, all treatments provided similar control throughout the experiment by greater than 80% at the conclusion of the experiment. The research demonstrates that sequential applications of mesotrione and amacarbazone can provide more annual bluegrass control than either herbicide alone, but efficacy is inconsistent across locations possibly due to annual bluegrass maturity and infestation severity. So, and again, I know, and I want to make this point clear, because what people are going to say is like, I heard on the damn burn and return podcast, if I mix up a $1,000 bottle of exonerate and a damn $300 <laughs> bottle of, of tenacity and went and sprayed that shit, it's going to kill my damn bluegrass. This is not what we're saying here. What you have to look at are these percentages and the variables that they've at least presented to us at this point. We're talking about 70% control, 80% control. So think about it. If you had a 100% coverage of your lawn of annual bluegrass and you attempted to kill it all with this kind of tank mix, we're talking about you losing 70% of your lawn, 80% of your lawn. That means 30, 20 Ten percent of it is still there. It's not a complete and total guaranteed elimination process. But in terms of what people are currently being able to do, this falls in line with some of the results we see from ethyfumosate and stuff, right? So, again, positive. These are more AIs in different combinations that we can use to help diversify our approach towards 
POA management, POA suppression, moderate levels of control, moderate to good levels of control, not a smoking gun. And I swear, if I get one email about it, I'm probably not going to read it anyway. So you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I think that's the 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 thing is that you know what you look at and they talk about you know using this mixture in the spring ray and then coming back with ethophemisate right in the late summer fall and trying to use some some type of a program to keep it at bay like you're never ever ever going to rid yourself of it and completely eradicate it but using all the tools in the toolbox here i thought one thing that was interesting too that we didn't really go over that should be mentioned right is and and ray you can speak to this especially on warm season and matt you too is anytime that we're asking chemistry to take one grass out of another grass it can be a little tricky right and when i say tricky i mean you can fuck you can fuck some shit up right Mm -hmm. and now here's the thing that gets even it raises the degree of difficulty is that we're trying to take out a grass that's in the same genus, right? Poa, as mm-hmm. the grass that we want to keep, which is Kentucky bluegrass and some of these test sites, Poa pretensis. That makes it even more difficult. And so what you see here, and the one thing I want to highlight on this is at varying rates, they show what the injury level is on some of these grasses. So we know that uh, you know repeated applications, even at low rates of uh, of tenacity can be injurious to tall fescue on kentucky bluegrass the uh exonerate can have the same effect and so an injury incidence as high as 34 percent of our kentucky bluegrass injured through these applications so there is some collateral damage here and it's not something that you know should be taken lightly but i thought it was interesting that you know again they're not just looking at a complete program Right, because that varies too widely. They got to really drill down and look at these individual treatments and timings and different sites and all that kind of stuff. And you can see how wildly inconsistent it is. It's it's not there. It's not something that you can point blank say, "Hey, if you're in the Midwest, if you're in the Mid Atlantic, if you're in the Mid South, if you're in uh, you know Washington State, yeah, pull the trigger on this." That's not what this is. So yeah. take it with a grain of salt, yeah. but it's good info. What do you think, Ray? This is. I I agree with this because, you know, I've talked to various people in the Discord about a POA management program on their cool season grass, and I've never had somebody come back to me and say, ooh, this sucked, it, it didn't work. And the reason why they didn't say that, of course, is because the emphasis is this is not a one and done application. This is not a two and done application. Controlling something like POA is a long term suppression slash management program. And speaking to your point, I can see how an, a spring application of exonerate plus tenacity segues into a late summer and fall application program involving progress 
yep. that may or may not have additional tenacity added to it. And I don't look at this in terms of just going after Fola, because by the way, Ryan, if somebody is applying mesotrione, amicarbazone, and esofumacete to a turf area, do you know what mm-hmm. else they're also controlling? Tell me. They're also controlling goosegrass and crabgrass. Good point. Okay, because, you know, you're probably thinking, oh, so I'm applying all of this, you know, stuff to the turf area. I look at it in terms of what else is going to be affected by this treatment program. And by the way, I often include that in my calculus whenever I select a particular treatment program for an area of turf is I often ask myself, what other weeds do I need to get rid of here? What is the actual side effect going to be of this? Yeah. And that often influences, for example, what I actually put into my overall treatment program because I don't only think in terms of just one weed. I, I kind of take it, you know, rather holistically. <laughs> you can't, and I think that's the. I think it's a great approach to take, Ray, of poannual management is that it is a holistic program that you have to run and mm-hmm. setting the bar for what what you would consider to be successful should not be oh i should never ever ever see poa out there unless you want to pick out your pocket knife and go out there and pick out every last plant mm-hmm. that's still left and god love yeah, you if you do and, and- and Ryan will supply the case of Keystone too. <laughs> Listen, I've been through. I'm going to go ahead and say hundreds of beers, picking Poa out of greens, plugging Poa out of greens, just every every year, and it worked. It mm-hmm. was fine, but yeah, you can't rely on chemistry alone. So, all right, what do we got in the mailbag, Mister Matt? You've got mail. I, t- I I stomped all over that. Can we get that one more time, Jay Pink? Apparently not. Yeah. Oh. Hey, we tried. We tried. I hate stomping on that. Oh, that scared me. I thought I did it again. I was like, damn it, I did it again. Gentlemen, we had an email from Joe this week, and it reads like this. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you all for everything y'all have done this year. Reflecting back, I've learned so much from you three. Thank you for all you do, and I hope you have a great holiday with your family. Thank well, you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much, Joe. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year, Joe. Man, that's, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about right there. If we can help one person, by God. That's fantastic. But if we can entertain 50 people, if we can entertain 69 people, (laughs) that would be nice. Uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Again, uh, I just want to say Merry Christmas to everybody. Ray, Ryan, Merry Christmas. Jay Pink, thank you for all you do. Merry Christmas, sir. And have a wonderful, wonderful New Year. I'm sure we'll be talking before then. 
Uh, coming up on Thursday, Thursday this week, we are doing a live call-in show with the three of us. So pick your poison on who you want to talk to. Call in, ask your question. We will not harass you. We will not create any problems. We'll probably cut up and tell some jokes with you. You got to remember, Brian DeMay over here is we have we have donned him the MacGyver of dirty jokes. Um, Welcome to your new title, sir. He can he can take a paper clip, a paper towel roll, and two fingers of duct tape and turn it into something that will get you excited. No doubt about it. All right, we yeah, are headed yeah. to the after show portion of this where we are going to let our patrons, our uh, co-sponsors of the show, our co-producers of the show uh, to come up with this week's title. We'll see everybody on Thursday. Uh-huh.